This is the essentials. 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 Welcome to episode number 12 of The Essentials. John, really appropriate that it's episode number 12 because really we're talking about the 12th man today. Oh, I wondered what you were going to do there. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to rhyme 12 with anything, but tying it into uh, the broader context of sports, which is really the topic we're discussing today, I thought was rather clever on my part. That was a soccer or football reference, but we're being more broad than that. I think we'll be a lot more broad than that. I think we'll talk about sports in, in general terms. Um, Obviously, Tom, a bit of an academic discussion. We're not here to you know say the Yankees suck. No, the Red Sox suck. You know, we're here to talk about, you know, the why why we have sports as a society, why we care, why they interest us, how we could do better. Yeah, what are the good side of sports? What's the dark side of sports? Maybe what's the future of sports? And I think we're referencing mostly professional sports, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, we are. And worth pointing out, you and I both really enjoy watching sport. We like talking about sport. We're both fans of sport. I used to work uh, as a sports broadcaster. I, I truly enjoy them. I am experiencing the... Uh, pitfalls and the peaks and valleys of being a Liverpool supporter this year mm-hmm. where uh, they're on a record-breaking course this year and will probably finish second and it's gutting me every single day. <laughs> there are fans who, yeah, they wake up sick every morning just wondering how their team's going to do. To me, it feels like that's going a little bit too far but for a lot of people out there, that's what gives their lives meaning. I know, it must be very nice to be a pure sport neutral and just sport and just enjoy sport for what it is but for those of us who... Uh, who support a team and, and wear the colors, it's it's an excruciating process. So I think I fall into that category you're getting at, a bit of a neutral. Um, but it does make it weird. I have a hard time understanding other people, and, and equally they have a hard time understanding me and why I just kind of watch not caring who wins. So it is a good question then, John. Like, why do we care so much about sports? Like, what is it? I mean, I, I know I can speak for myself, but there, there's a million different ways or a thousand yeah. different ways that people might care about their sports. So some of these reasons would include the hometown pride. I don't know that this is as prevalent as it used to be 50 or 100 years ago when all the athletes playing for your hometown team were from your hometown. So it really felt like, yes, we won this championship, our town, we did this. But there's still a certain amount that at play, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, local clubs um, in, in second, third, fourth divisions will be have, have that hometown feeling to it. But, you know, nowadays with sports, it's so international. I mean, I, yeah. I, always, I often think about this in the start of a, an NHL game in Vancouver. They play, you know, um, the Star Spangled Banner in O Canada and on the ice are four Swedes, two yeah. Finns, a, a German and three Russians, you know, like it's... The, the, the idea of hometown doesn't really make a lot of sense in professional sports. At the top levels of professional sports, it is global, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Um, I do think there is still some of that city pride. Uh, yeah. it, it, nothing feels better than sticking it to the Maple Leafs when they come to town and shutting all their fans up. Like, that feels great. And it's fun to be in a town when the hometown team is winning, when everyone's getting caught up in that spirit and, and you know enjoying the ride and talking about it every morning after the previous night's game. There's more to it than that, though, John. I would I would argue that beyond just supporting your city and being proud of the the, the club that that uh, that plays in your city, it's about inspiring people. And I think yeah. for all of us, you know, when the World Cup's on, for instance, more of us are probably out in the fields kicking a ball around. And when it's the Olympics, you know, street hockey erupts in the in in the streets all all across Canada. So I think it does get people 
out of their front door and engage in the community a bit more too. So that's one of the arguments often made in favor of the Olympics, particularly when it comes to the expenses of the Olympics. Oh, it's going to inspire kids to take up sport. The studies though, Tom, suggest that's not really the case. One study found only 7% of respondents said they'd been inspired to take up sport by the 2012 games in London. And of course, while they do leave a leg legacy of infrastructure, I mean, it's only for the top athletes. There's maybe even less money in the budget for amateur athletes, for those at the bottom end, particularly those for whom affordability was already a major barrier, and now it's just a bigger one. It's a fair point, John. I would argue that it's difficult to do a study of the effectiveness of the 2012 games so early yeah. on. I know that sounds stupid because we're seven years on, yeah. but when we think about hockey in the United States, for instance, Wayne Gretzky goes to Southern California in the early 90s, 1990, I think, or 91, we're now seeing generations of kids coming up playing hockey in the United States, places like Texas, places like San Diego, places that really don't see ice any time of the year, and they're there because of the Gretzky effect. And I would argue that the impact of the Olympics, we'll see those effects 10, 15, 20 years down the road. I'd agree with you. Without Gretzky going to LA, there are probably no Anaheim Mighty Ducks. There's perhaps no Austin Matthews. So the Olymp Olympic trickle-down effect does seem to work a little bit as well. For the Paralympics, we see a lot more um, kids with, with mm -hmm. disabilities mm -hmm. and adults as well with disabilities saying, hey, I can go out and do that and be proud of, of doing it. Yeah, I mean, if they can do it, so can I, so can I. And, and I think that's a really important thing as well. I would argue also that there's a, a piece of professional sports that really unites and, and engages people. And, and I'll reference again that, that club that I'm beginning to reference more and more, which is <laughs> Liverpool. But certainly in the 1980s, when I think we were, you could make the argument that sports really began to explode on the national consciousness, the 80s and the 90s. In the 1980s, it was pretty dire in these northern England towns as the as Thatcher was crushing the, the coal miners' union uh, and there was economic disparity. And, and for those people, it was something to feel good again, that we may be getting hammered in, by federal politicians at this moment in time, um, but our team is the best in the world. We're, we're conquering Europe. We're conquering England. There was something about that, I think. I think of the Primera League in Spanish cheering for Barcelona back in the day. It was the only way Catalans could voice their regional identity, the only way they could protest against Spanish colonialism. They weren't even allowed to fly the Catalan flag back there, but they could cheer for Barcelona FC. So it became a very political gesture, just cheering for your team. In Liverpool, they, they often will say, we're not English, we're Scouse. And that sort of references the regionality of things, for sure. slightly more poor, more rural towns <laughs> in northern rough. England. <laughs> pretty and rough. We could come up with whatever example we want, but certainly sports seem to exist in a large part as an escape from a mundane and, and sometimes pretty crappy existence for people. For 90 minutes a week, 96 minutes with injury time, <laughs> you can check all your other problems at the door. You can ignore your boss who's treating you like garbage. You can ignore the fact that you've been laid off the week before. You can ignore that your relationship has gone sour. You can ignore all the other kind of 
parts of our, our existence which are kind of garbage. And for 90 minutes, you can switch on the television or go to the stadium and just focus entirely on the hometown team. So do you think that this is why sports maybe appeal more to lower and middle class people across the world? I'm not sure if I'm prepared to make that kind of claim. Um, Without more evidence, at least. Yeah, I would, need to, I would definitely need to see more evidence. But I think there's something to that, that for 90 minutes, you get to just take a little vacation from yeah. maybe a life that isn't panning out exactly the way you want. And maybe even relive some dreams that left you a little while ago once your knees started to hurt and your hair went gray. Oh, man, I kick every single ball on a right. Sunday morning or right. a Saturday morning when I'm watching the team. Every header, I'm, I'm trying to bash that right. ball in with my head. And, you know, and I'm, I'm there, I'm there. Nice. And, and you know what I say that maybe they appeal more to the lower and middle classes, but I guess you could make the same claims. You know, wealthy people are going to art openings and operas, and those probably provide the same escape opera plots plots aren't exactly realistic. Oh, sure. I mean, in, in any corporate lawyer's office, we gather around the water cooler, and what are they talking about? They're talking about that moment. Hey, we, did you see Jordan when right. he dunked it over Matumbo? Well, how about that last shot that he nailed, right. right? Those magical moments. I mean, they ignore class, they ignore race, they ignore gender. They just unify everyone who's there to watch. Oh, my goodness. In fact, you've got us onto a new kind of topic here. It is these magical moments which seem to bring us back a lot of times to sport. Sure. Bobby Orr soaring through the air. Yeah. Um, you know, you were referencing last time Derek, Derek Redmond um, crossing the finish line in Barcelona with the help of his father. I mean, what, a, what an incredible moment to watch. For those who don't remember, his hamstring went out on the back straightaway. He'd been plagued by injuries, just hoping to get back on the podium, back in fighting shape. And... And he went down and, and could barely walk, and he just limped across the line, and his dad came out from the stands. Go and watch it on YouTube if you oh, have four minutes. Brilliant. It, it still gives me goosebumps. Redmond has broken down. He's on the track, kneeling down, and Derek Redmond, on his injury problem, the jinx has struck again. And, and this is a moment I would say that maybe does more for Great Britain as a nation, as for its legacy, for its reputation, than winning a medal would have done. Usain Bolt, fastest man who has ever run. Right. I remember watching that when he 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 doesn't just beat the world record; he smashes the world record. The Usain Bolt sprinting ahead, winning by daylight, and setting a world record: nine point six eight. The wind is okay. New world record. How easy was that? Yeah. I mean, he's the greatest Olympian ever because every single person, every single one of us, at some point in our life has run, run <laughs> as fast as we can, whether or not it's, you know, you're a scared kid imagining there's a serial killer chasing you or you're trying to win the, the gold medal at your high school track and field tournament. Whatever it is, all of us have run as fast as we possibly can. And he's done it faster than anyone. And there's 7 billion people on the planet and he's faster than every single one of them. It's amazing. And no one had ever won the 100, the 200, and the relay. And he did all three, three different Olympics in a row. He had one of those taken away, I guess, but eight of nine with a doping allegation against one of his teammates, he did pretty well. Yeah, and, and here we are <laughs> in this podcast reliving these magical moments, right. and it doesn't this highlight the point as well. Yes, so I think maybe it's worth asking then, Tom, we've been talking all about fantasies, living vicariously through other people's uh, magical moments, even though they speak to all of us. Are there concrete goods, though, that we can point at, concrete benefits from sport? You know, there's some really good people that end up in professional sports. And I think, I think the media nowadays 
we like to spend, well, I don't know if we like to, but the media spends a lot of its time tearing people down and showing the warts and doesn't spend enough time on the really good things that a lot of these athletes are doing. And I'm going to reference a couple of hometown players from Vancouver. They're not from Vancouver, but uh, have certainly adopted Vancouver, Daniel and Henrik Sedin, mm-hmm. uh, very quietly donating millions of dollars to Children's Hospital. And, and the caveat was they didn't want their names published because it, it, they weren't doing it to get famous for it or to get good, yeah. like a they pat on the back. doing it for all the right reasons. Absolutely. And they're just one example, John. So maybe the big example right now is the LeBron James sure. I Promise School and this program in Ohio. This is sports mattering to the world. He's done immense good. Maybe, yes, thanks to his immense wealth. But this is a guy putting his money where his mouth is. Um, and, and he's done a lot of good for a lot of kids. Posey will defend. Oh! LeBron James with no regard for human life has given the so many of these athletes will do things. Uh, they'll go to hospitals. Yeah. They'll spend hours and hours of their time signing autographs for kids, inspiring people, going to hospitals, go to schools. Maybe they're not quite putting in the LeBron James school, um, but they're doing really good stuff with their money. And I think, you know, maybe we, we should give them a little bit of a, a, a pat on the back for this. Um, there are concrete goods that come out of this professional sports. And I'd agree. Most athletes are pretty good. They spend their time. They spend their money. They're good people from good families who really want to do the right thing. Most of them, I would say, fall into that category. On the ice with Aginla. Aginla Sidney Crosby, the golden goal. So, John, lots of good things about professional sports, hometown pride, you know, the where were you moments. Athletes that are just doing lots of good with the money that they're given. Uh, the generous money that they're given, to be fair. But it's not all good, is it? There's some kind of nasty side to professional sports. Q, FIFA, the IOC. Here we go, Tom. These organizations corrupt to the core. And maybe (laughs) maybe this is just uh, easy, you know, shooting fish in a barrel to pick on these two organizations that are supposed to stand up for their sports, for the game, and instead they're just standing up for themselves. But... But they're the poster child for this corruption, yes. aren't they? I mean, they represent everything that's wrong with sport. They've taken this beautiful thing, they've turned it into a dirty money, money-making venture, and they've just screwed with it the whole way. Consider, very quickly, if you would, the World Cup in Brazil. You could also say this about Russia, South Africa, Qatar, the upcoming Qatar, oh, come on. Oh, my goodness, were they predicting, what, 4,000? transient workers to die just building stadiums there. That's before a single ball is even Let's cooked. not even Kit. talk about women's rights or minority right. rights, you know? Right. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to rat now. You now, go ahead. So, and you could also say, I mean, look, Russia spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 billion putting on the Sochi Olympics. At least in Vancouver, when people were arguing fund health care instead of the Olympics in 2010, you can make the counter-argument, yes, but we can afford both in this part of the world. And eight, nine billion that we spent on Vancouver, not to mention getting sea to sky upgrades and the Canada line to the airport. I mean, those were benefits for the whole city. And you can afford both. And our healthcare system isn't perfect, but it's working relatively well, right? And to be fair, our labor codes is so strict that you can't get away with right. migrant workers or slave workers or, or any of these other kind of workers, which you can get away with in right. places like China, which really did that as well. Right. Let's not forget. Meanwhile, in Brazil, they spend about $15 billion hosting the World Cup. They only get $100 million back from FIFA because FIFA pockets all those profits, right? <laughs> Just in case you're doing the math, that's about a 6% return on your investment. More to the point, 
You got 12 million people, depending on how you count, living on slums in Brazil in absolute poverty. These people make about 500 bucks a year. You could give all those people living in the slums three years' salary, or you could host the World Cup. And to be clear, that's 500 bucks, and we're, we're doing um, purchasing power parity on that, which right. means basically that's $500 Canadian to live in Vancouver a year. So good luck with that. Right. And, and meanwhile, they built this famous stadium in Manaus, the Arena de Amazonia. Oh, goodness. $300 million in the middle of nowhere. And as predicted, Tom, it's a big white elephant. It's, it's a parking lot. And barely ever used. Well, it was stuck right in the middle of the Amazon right. in an area where there wasn't even a, a massive football club to take it over after the games. And in an area that's not really the most hospitable to playing a game of football anyway. I remember uh, England against Italy in that game. And it looked... All the players were done after about 50 minutes because the humidity was yeah. at 6,000% or something. And the heat was 120 degrees, and who wants to play with that? And, and, and now, like you say, there's no one who can really use this thing. It's in the middle of nowhere. And they also come in and change the laws of a country. <sighs> they had had a big problem with alcoholism at stadiums in Brazil right. for their soccer culture, so they outlawed beer sales in stadiums. FIFA comes in, who's a major sponsor of FIFA, Budweiser, they Budweiser. say, no, no, you're changing that law. You don't have any say in this. You are changing it. In South Africa, they set up, they were basically colloquially known as FIFA courts, where anyone caught any locals, of course, caught breaking the law, particularly if it involved foreigners coming for the World Cup, they were very quickly and harshly dealt with, and it wasn't very uh, just. So these events end, end up being just sort of like parties for like the, the richest people in the world. Yeah. Um, and so FIFA and the IOC, they go into these countries, places like Brazil, uh, for instance, uh, and basically uh, exploit them for their money with these vague promises of financial investment return that's going to come their way. And the people that end up paying the, the cost of these things are the people who can least afford it. Mm -hmm. And they're lining their pockets. The rich are lining their pockets with the, the hard labor and the work of the people who, who have the, the least amount to give. So it's, it's a real ugly side to it. It's disgusting. And I, I love the Olympics and I love the World Cup. Me too. And it, it, but it, it hurts me that they're so corrupt and so poorly executed and that it, it comes on the sweat and blood of people who have nothing to do with it. Well, the, the next World Cup in, that's going to be in North America, Vancouver was one of the teams bidding, right. or one of the cities bidding for a game. But because FIFA wasn't prepared to give them the contract up front, Vancouver walked away from the it. The province now, of British Columbia. The yeah. province of British Columbia. Now, as a football fan, I mean, that guts me because I want to see the World Cup. But yeah. boy, oh boy, as a taxpayer, I'm not prepared to put one penny towards FIFA yeah. if, if they're going to host the World Cup here. Not one penny. Even as a big football huge fan. Okay, fan so hold on let's slow down a little bit fifa ioc very easy targets for us tom to rant and rave about what are some other uh you know downsides to the world of sport particularly professional sport well let's get started on the nfl then and uh concussions the no fun league that the, doesn't sound fun right uh so these these high contact sports the, uh, and the nfl is not the only one i mean no. the rnhl yeah. definitely gary bettman just the other day testifying this pretending like he's never seen any sort of concussion related injuries but we know about these leagues hiding concussion studies it, you know john it reminds me so much of cigarette companies yeah. that used to hide like oh we didn't know cigarettes were addictive and we had no idea nicotine was was doing all these things to people's lungs and causing cancer and all you, these sorts of things you see the testimony of the seven doors in, right. It, it's hinted in Gary Bettman's testimony. Absolutely. So these these leagues are creating rules that are allowing people to get hurt. And then these people go off with these massive impacts from these concussions and their brains are mush. And then they can, they, a, a number of them will 
are unable to leave healthy lives afterwards. They'll, you know, drink, they'll smash their car into a tree, they'll beat their wife, they'll, they'll in some cases, murder other people, like or, Aaron or Hernandez, or them so much suicide, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. And the league just walks away and says, well, we've got nothing, we don't know anything about it, and it's disgusting, John. Now, it's as a counter-argument, Tom, what if I say, okay, as a 16, 18, 22-year-old who really wants to do this, I'll take that trade to be a, a star, to be rich and famous for a couple of years. And that is the trade that people take. And so I guess the broader question then is, should, should we allow it to happen? Mm -hmm. Like, shouldn't the... I mean, do the leagues up front say that if you join this league, you have a 65% chance of having concussion-related <laughs> symptoms afterwards, you'll probably suffer depression and anxiety because of your head injuries? No, I don't think that's right. contracted out anywhere. So the question is, you know, are these athletes... Um, are they agreeing to the terms of conduct in these arenas? Informed and, consent. Yeah, and I, I don't think they are. And, then, and you know, a, a perfect example of this is the Todd Bertuzzi incident in Vancouver, right. where he, he smashes Steve Moore. Okay, probably he wasn't trying to knock him out and injure yeah. him the way he did, but does Steve Moore consent to that kind of behavior mm. when he signs up to be a, an NHL player? And I would say no, he doesn't. Um, now I'm, I'm, I'm using an extreme example, but but my point is 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 when football players sign up to play this sport, they're signing up in a league which has knowingly hidden the findings from them. So they're not actually going in being aware of the risks. Right. Now, the violence, of course, <laughs> not just confined to the arena, to the boxing, you know, tarp. Uh, it's definitely not a tarp, is it a mat? Mat. Um, <laughs> the violence is very often outside the stadium. Let's talk about hooligans then and, and yeah. ultras. You know, soccer fans going and, and punching each other up inside, not just English stadiums that used to be much worse in the 80s and the 90s in Britain, but, you know, you go to any Italian match and the, the, the ultras there or in the, in the former yeah. Yugoslavia, it's absolutely crazy. Eastern Europe is nuts, isn't it? And sometimes it almost seems sanctioned by teams or nations. Certainly Russia oh. seemed a little bit protective of those Russian nationals who were scrapping during the European Championship in uh, Poland and Ukraine. Yeah, so absolutely. I think there's a state-sponsored element to it. Mm -hmm. uh, so soccer is obviously very famous for its hooligan culture. Now, you could argue that these are just violent people who are going to go out on the streets and fight anyway, and soccer is just a vehicle to let them do it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But they're there. And um, you maybe couldn't say that about the Stanley Cup rides. That probably wouldn't <laughs> have happened had it not been a bunch of people who drank a little bit too much and were disillusioned when they thought they were going to get you know, their magical moment and it didn't happen for them and they were upset and didn't know how to handle it. Well, I can think of four Canadian riots in history. One was in Winnipeg in 1919 over labor laws, and the other three had to do with hockey. One in Montreal <laughs> when Maurice Richard was banned, and two in Vancouver when they lost <laughs> in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. And, and that's it. Like, Canadians are, you know, to generalize, we tend not to be a rioting nation, no. but you've <laughs> you, you load up a bunch of people with booze and put them in, a, in, a, in, a, in an outdoor arena and watch the home team lose and, you know, five minutes later, cop cars are on fire. So, I, I mean, and is there a solution there? No, probably not. People just need to behave better. You need security and, and hopefully the bad actors are dealt with so that the rest of us can go and enjoy the sport, right, in peace, which we intended to do all along. Yeah, hopefully that's what you want. So tell me then where we stand on Colin Kaepernick. And my point here in my question isn't sh should he be allowed to protest or what do you think of his protest? It's more, what do you think of how the NFL handled it? So I do think sports athletes should try and conduct themselves 
in a manner that is becoming of the league. I mean, they're employees of the league, just like you and I are employees of any place where, where we work, that we should consider the impact that our actions have on the place where we work. And if that negatively affects the place of our work, we should expect to maybe not have a job there anymore. However, I would also then say that just like athletes, I am allowed to have my, my point of view and I'm allowed to peacefully protest things which I, I don't think are right. So what do I think about Colin Kaepernick in this one? I think he had every right to kneel for the anthem uh, and I think the, the NFL didn't do a good enough job protecting him. I think they hung him out to drive and, and I do think that there was a coordinated agreement amongst the owners not mm -hmm. to give this guy a job because mm -hmm. he's better than a lot of those quarterbacks out there. Right. Um, for those just kind of wondering, maybe there might be a few people lost out there. Colin Kaepernick, uh, quarterback with the San Francisco 49ers mm -hmm. at the time, uh, took a knee during the national anthem to protest um, racial inequalities in the street. It turned, a lot of people voiced it though as he was protesting the flag or disrespecting right. troops. It never really had anything to do with troops, did no. it? In fact, he changed his protest because he didn't want it to reflect on the troops. Yeah, I think initially he was going to stay in the locker room or he was going to sit down for the, yeah. sit down for it, but then he spoke to, uh, I, th I think it was a Marine, a retired Marine, yeah. who said, no, the respectful way to do this then is, is to kneel respectfully. And he did. He kneeled respectfully. But I think his point was, you know, throwing back to that moment in uh, the 1968 Olympic Mexico Games. Mexico City, correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you had the, the John two. John Carlos. Thank you. Um, raising his fist uh, mm -hmm. uh, on the podium. Uh, it's, it's similar to this, right? Like okay. he's, he's highlighting a societal problem. Uh, and, and one that I think is there. So this rankled our society, you're right, and everyone was taking a different side on this. Does it reflect badly on him, on the owners, on the league, on the President of the United States, on the fans themselves, or is this just one of the ways that our disagreements were playing out and this is where the argument just happened to nest? I think in the, the judgment of history, we'll judge Colin Kaepernick fairly on this one, mm -hmm. and I think it'll be harsh on the NFL, and it'll be harsh on Donald Trump. Like, so many things are gonna be harsh on Donald Trump through, through the <laughs> scope of history. Okay. Match fixing, gambling, Tom, yeah. you were talking a little bit about these as pernicious side effects? Yeah, so if you look at um, Italian football, it's been rife with, with match fixing and gambling because it's become a big business. Referees getting paid off to throw games, players throwing games. This hasn't really crept into the North American realm. I can't think of a single example in, in North American football I think sports. maybe in college sports, but not pro, yeah. Yeah, um, this, it, it does have an, an element of an ugly side to it for sure. I mean, uh, Juventus, for instance, was yeah. knocked down to the second division for this very yeah. reason. Um, so I do think this is a part of it, but John, there's more to it. Do you want to take on uh, parents? Okay, yeah, so it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it, how we, we all, particularly as people who love sport, and, and you and I work in sport, and we we see not just parents, but but kids too. There There's such a, a drive now for kids that want to be pro, not just pro athletes, but pro athletes in their chosen sport. They're specializing younger, they're spending tons of money to go to these academies. I, I don't think it serves them well as people or our society as well. How about helicopter parents? Um, you know, they're, they're arriving at the games, they're abusing the officials, yeah. uh, they are spending you know, oodles of money to, to um, create the environment in which their kid's going to be a pro, pro player. But what are the statistics? Like 0.02% of hockey players are going to end up in the NHL, some outrageous number like that. And we all talk about how 
you know, play different sports when you're a kid, play different sports, you know, diversify, diversify. And then kids say, yeah, okay, but I just want to play hockey. And then in summer, I'm going to go to a hockey camp. Mm -hmm, This is the mm -hmm. opposite. Why do we let them do it? And then we spend money for them to go to an academy. I mean, I guess if you're a parent and you have that money and want to spend it on your kid, fine, but I'm not sure that you're actually serving your kid well. And I'm also worried that we had done so much, particularly in a game like hockey that's expensive, to try to break down those financial barriers, and now we're watching it become a rich kid's sport again. And then the kid develops a sports-related injury to, to boot, and, and you're surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, Wayne Gretzky always said that he looked forward to the offseason because he got to play lacrosse and baseball, yeah. and he hung his skates up, and he put his stick away, and he played other things, and he's only just the greatest hockey player ever lived. You'll notice this doesn't seem to be a problem in girls' sports, and I wonder mm. if that's maybe because girls never have this this fantasy that they're going to go on to be millionaire athletes, the, the market just isn't there. It's a separate conversation, I know. But, you know, if a girl doesn't have that potential in front of her, then she's just going to focus on playing sports for fun, which is what they're supposed to be. Yeah, there's no retirement plan in, right. in women's sport at, at the moment. But for men, I think uh, a lot of boys growing up thinking they're going to get rich being a pro athlete. Tom, that there's anything wrong with a kid having dreams, and if I'd had the opportunity to be a pro athlete, I would have done it in a heartbeat in pretty much any sport. Yeah, it would have been great. Hey? <laughs> so we talk about how professional sports have changed over the years, mm. particularly through commercialization, monetization. How has being a fan changed? When I look around arenas in the NHL now, one of the things I'm really struck by is how everyone in the arena seemed to all be wearing the same jerseys now. Yeah. It's like you're not allowed admission unless you've dropped another 200 bucks on a, like, you know, yeah. Jets or a Flames jersey, you in know, the if you're 80s, in the playoffs. In the 80s, Winnipeg and Calgary had the whiteout and the redout, the sea of red. Now it's, it's every arena, particularly it, at playoff time. Everywhere, yeah. Uh, and even in home games, um, th- sorry, regular season games, you see the, the, the flags and the colors everywhere. It's almost like, I don't know. Uh, I, I also think, Tom, maybe more noticeably, is not, it's not just inside the arenas. It's everywhere you go in society, walking around a mall, seeing people drive, the bumper stickers, the T-shirts, the hats we are identifying ourselves in public by who we cheer for as professional sports, maybe more than, you know, what companies we like or what political party we ascribe to, anything. That seems to be one of our main defining characteristics these days as people is, what sports team do I like? Like it or not, we've become slaves to the wonderful and talented sports marketing agents. Uh, And boy, have they ever done a good job uh, (laughs) convincing me to spend money that I should spend elsewhere. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I've also noticed a change in fans that they seem to be louder. And it's encouraged, isn't it? I, I, when I would go to games in the 80s and 90s, I remember looking around and people would be quietly watching the game. Mm. Some places, Calgary was famous. NHL players from other cities would be like, it's like a morgue when you come to play in Calgary. <laughs> it's right. because the, the fans were there. The stadium was full, but people were just quietly watching, studying. Now, the loudest fans are the best fans, and you know, fan bases really stay with pride. We have the best, loudest fans. I referenced it right off the top of the show, John, the idea of the 12th man. This was a, uh, a former Nike executive who went working for the Seattle Seahawks and yeah. came up with this idea of the 12th man. And yeah, like it 
And I would argue it works because they're so loud, it actually affects the, the play. Certainly in football, you think it helps out the defensive team. And, and every athlete knows what it's like to be perked up by a loud, boisterous fan base. Does it have quite the effect, though, that we as fans think it has? Uh, you know, if you listen to players and if you take the players seriously, they'll often talk about uh, the intimidating nature of going into a really yeah. loud arena or a really loud stadium. Uh, I, I would, okay. I'm sure it has some effect. They're okay. human after all. I, I listen to them, but I don't take them seriously. I think they're <laughs> saying that because why wouldn't you say that? Of course you're going to say that. But yeah, you I might smell some more jerseys that way, maybe, right? right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not convinced that the fans actually make the difference that they think they're making. You notice how in North America we call them fans and in you know, in England, they call supporters. them supporters. supporters. I think that's flattering. You're not a supporter. You're, <laughs> You're not holding event. anything up. Yeah. Well, we're fanatical about it, uh, which is, okay. I think, where, the, where it comes from. Yeah. But, you know, John, being a, um, being a sport fan has taken on new elements as well. And I'm thinking about fantasy sports, which has sort of uh, taken this, those, those sort of stat nerds uh, are able to really get their stat fix in fantasy football, uh, fantasy hockey. Um, all sorts of statistics now are being spoken about uh, in terms of uh, what's happening on the field, maybe this is a throwback from from Moneyball. Maybe that changed yeah. the conversation about statistics. The new but GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs, very much a, a Moneyball kind sure. of mold. The stats first. Sure. But I, I, thank you for proving me wrong here instantly, though, because it seems that <laughs> at least there is a market for the for the niche nerdy sports fan, and it's not just a dumbing down of the culture. Well, the the sports marketers have tried to market it to every facet of society, so it really just highlights that part. just with the advent of the internet with 200 plus channels on everyone's TV. We just have so much more access, don't we? These days, you know, 20, 40 years ago, Saturday night was a special night for Hockey Night in Canada. Now it's on every night of the week and you can get your fix if you want. Some people say it's oversaturated, it's become boring, it's less special, but obviously there's still a market for it or they wouldn't be showing them. Yeah, I remember watching one, two, maybe five Canucks games a year and now I can watch all of them, although... It is a little depressing watching that team these days. It's been tough on some marriages, too. <laughs> so, John, we've digested this topic pretty thoroughly. What does the future hold for being a sports fan, do you think? And for maybe for the sports themselves? Sure, perhaps? why not? Okay. Why not? Well, so I, I, I say for the sports themselves, the one thing that I think of right away is, is how sports seem to be becoming more specialized. You think of these one-out pitchers in baseball, particularly in American sports. We have mm -hmm. these guys who are just really, really good at just not just that one sport, but one aspect of the sport. Um, it, it's the managers, the players, to a certain extent, the fans like it because they think it's giving their team an edge. But on the broad spectrum, I'm not sure that it's making these sports more watchable, more entertaining, more fun. I'm glad you spoke about that idea of entertaining because when I think about hockey, for instance, you now have coaches for all sorts of things. You've got mm. a power play coach, a penalty kill coach, a defensive coach, an offensive coach, a goaltending coach. A uh, psychology coach, a nutrition right. coach, yeah. And so what's happening is you're getting these teams, and they are so good. I mean, yeah. look, the teams of today, I don't care what anyone says, any team of today would smash any team from the 80s in, in, in hockey because the athletes are that much better. 
But the problem is it becomes a little bit of a, an arms race where all the teams are that much better that we've kind of lost a bit of the yeah. a bit of the charm and a bit of the character, right? There, there aren't as many characters in the league anymore. That might be fair to say. Now, the one thing I would say, at least in defense of hockey, is you know you don't get just fighters anymore or somebody who can only take a big slap shot and can't do other things. At least hockey still demands such a wide skill set, which maybe isn't the case for something like baseball where I can just come in, throw one guy out, and go back to the bullpen. Yeah, I see, I see the point. My only complaint about hockey is it's harder to find people making mistakes out there. Right. And when you, watch a, when you watch a game, like the excitement comes usually yes. from someone making a mistake somewhere. Well, and so I think the problem actually lies with the organizers, with the commissioners of these yeah. leagues, with the owners. They want their teams to win. So you bring in a rule that allows for more you know, instant replays or more specialty pitchers or bigger rosters, whatever it is individually these things might make your team more likely to win but the slow creep is that yeah. these sports are becoming more boring less accessible particularly to neutral fans and they're dragging on and on and on a baseball game now goes longer than it used to go 10 20 50 years ago and baseball attendance is starting to go down a little bit now you could argue it's steroid scandals and other stuff too or maybe just there's so much other stuff on tv to watch but baseball attendance is down uh, refer, uh, sorry, coaches' challenges on offsides in, in hockey has really slowed the game down. Um, in, in football, there's called uh, video-assisted referee, and they're going to analyze every single goal and look back from offsides. Yeah, it does make it more fair, and I get that. And it's pr- they do make the right calls in the end, but it takes away some of that spontaneity, some of that excitement, the, the human element, right, where I guess it, it is a good... Um, balancing act to prevent it from you know uh, people throwing matches on purpose or or referees intentionally making bad calls but there's something uh, it takes away from the moment I think no one likes it when a call goes against their team but in the long run we need bad calls in sport don't we they keep us talking even when it's talking about controversy Uh, they fool us into thinking these sports are fair when that's maybe not the case, and right. maybe most importantly, they give underdogs a chance to win, and everybody benefits when that happens. Everyone likes the underdog. You know, John, I want to bring up this idea. Of, you talked about steroids briefly. Um, mm. Performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, genetic manipulation is becoming more and more a thing. I mean, in the future, is sport going to be the realm of people who have been genetically manipulated in utero to be bigger, faster, stronger, and will we lose that connection between the common person and the athlete? They're currently uh, negotiating right there. They're trying to find the balance between uh, human rights concerns and fairness concerns in the Castor Semenya case, the South African sprinter, uh, who was born, I guess, intersex. And a lot of females don't like it. They don't think it's fair, but but what's fair to her? And I'm not sure I have an answer to that, but, you know, these are going to become more pressing questions as time goes on, particularly, as you point out, for steroids and genetic manipulation. And you're referencing, of course, her testosterone levels. Um, And so now she's put in this situation where she either needs to take testosterone-reducing drugs to drop her down to the the levels of her competitors. And to be fair, I mean, she is smashing the competition. So I I don't know what the future is going to hold for sports. I I do wonder... um, uh, that genetic manipulation and drugs is going to create these super athletes that are not going to look a, a lot like you or I. I mean, they don't look like you or I now, but mm. you know what I mean? Like that kind of, yeah. they're not going to be just regular people who got lucky. They're going to be engineered this way. So what about the onset of a whole new type of athlete, Tom, the e-sports athlete? Holy smokes. <laughs> can we actually call this athletics? I don't uh, know. But can you call a race car driver an athlete? Oh. The car is doing all the work, Tom. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's a huge phenomenon. There are people making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. College scholarships. Making playing video games. Yeah. It's a big industry, and maybe we sound like fuddy duddies when I you know tell my kids to get outside and stop playing video games. Maybe I should tell them to get inside and start playing <laughs> video games more. Maybe this is their their future. Um, I don't know enough about this. I I do think it's it's coming though, isn't it? It's here. Uh, yeah, even, but even more and so. growing. Yeah. I mean, kids are watching, you know, people playing video games on YouTube. Like, like the same way that you and I might watch highlights on YouTube. They're right. watching other kids playing video games. Um, is, is it the end of sports? Is this the end of Western society as we know it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is crazy to see how things change now. Is there a parallel between the instant replays of sports and the stop-and-go nature of some of these sports we've mentioned and the esports that are coming in that it's... It's more about, I don't even know what it's more about, the, the moment rather than the athleticism behind it. Maybe it's tied up with our inability to concentrate for more than 10 minutes at a time. You know, you can't sit down and watch a 90-minute a, a match that turns into a two-and-a-half-hour match, but you could sit down for 20 minutes and see who's going to be the ultimate champion in FIFA 19. question in this quite lengthy pod of ours is does the good outweigh the bad is it worth it to keep professional sports going what do you think i mean you got to assume it does that's why it's been with us for so long i know sports have only been professionalized the way we think of them now in the past century but we've always loved watching people do exceptional things and we've always loved taking part in it ourselves athletically from the ancient Roman games or the ancient Greek games of the Olympics all the way through to the modern Olympic games. We've always been impressed by the extent to which humans can push themselves physically. And we were talking earlier about the things people get out of sport. Maybe we didn't give enough credit to just these feats of athleticism that people obviously tune in to see, whether it's watching the whole game or watching the highlights. You don't have to be some partisan hack to only support your team. There's lots of people out there that'll watch sport just for the sheer beauty of the human form, and maybe we haven't given enough people enough credit for that. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why a lot of people didn't like the Kaepernick fiasco, however you want to side in it. It took away from their sport, and they just felt like they were pushed away, and they just wanted to watch football. And to me, John, I think that's the ultimate answer when we consider this question. Are professional sports worth it? Is it still a good thing to have, despite all the controversy, despite FIFA, despite the dirty money, despite the horrible helicopter parents, despite it all? For me, it's worth it, because at the end of the day, for 90 minutes, like we said earlier, I can engross myself in this team. Uh, It's something for me to really care about. It's something I really enjoy, like a like a nice glass of wine. And maybe it isn't great for me if I get too involved in it, but if I involve myself just a little bit, I think it just makes that life a little bit sweeter sometimes. To me, sports have always been entertainment, and some people want to see them as something separate, but they're not to me. It's entertainment, and when people are more involved in their entertainment, that's why we see video games so popular. That's why people are wearing their red shirts to watch their red team play. They feel more involved. So it's more entertaining because it's just, you know, stimulating more of our senses. Sports are entertainment. And if we enjoy it, then it's a plus, right? I couldn't have said it better myself. 
For some people, it means more, but for most of us, it's just something, some way to spend our Saturday afternoons. He shoots, he scores. All out there, we're on the air, it's hockey night tonight. Tension grows, the whistle blows, and the puck goes down the ice. The goalie jumps and the players bump and the fans all go insane. Someone roars, Bobby scores at the good old hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Second period. Where players dash with skates of flash, the home team trails behind. But they grab the puck and go bursting up, and they're down across the line. They storm the crease like bumblebees. They travel like a burning flame.